Hello, and welcome to a special science and technology episode of Future Chat. My name is Rob Attrell. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Mike Attrell, and our senior contributor, Nick Maddox. Today, we'll be devoting a whole episode to light. From radio waves bringing you music in the car, to gamma rays creating the Hulk. We'll be spanning the entire spectrum of light during this illuminating episode. Thanks for tuning in. This episode has a very bright future. (laughs) (laughs) That was horrible, Rob. All the puns? (laughs) The main pun. The one pun at the end. I'm trying to go in the Mythbusters direction and uh, make as many puns as possible. Is that... Are we not okay with that as a, as a group? The, the effort is appreciated. Oh, good. That's all I really wanted to hear. Uh, so, I'm here today. I want to start because I never really introduced the topic after the, the little introduction. I'm here today with Mike Attrell, my cousin and co-host of Future Chat. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing Fantastic. That's good to hear. Any any news this week we should know about? Is there, suppo- is there supposed to be news? To oh, no. I, not that I had in mind. <laughs> Unless you know something I don't. <laughs> no. Uh, also here is Nick Maddox, our senior contributor. Uh, he asked for that title. How are you doing, Nick? <laughs> so happy now that I got that title. <laughs> Anything going on with you, Nick? Uh, Unix—a funny word. Um, <laughs> Do you say Unix uh, or Unix? They're both funny words, actually. <laughs> Unix. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we get into our episode on light, I wanted to follow up on last week's episode, which, in which we discussed the—I guess technically it's controversial, but it's maybe controversial for bad reasons—genetically uh, modified organisms or GMOs. Uh, We got a bit of feedback on our show that I wanted to address briefly just because I think it's humorous and it's important that we... Just, just... Yeah? Just a bit of feedback we got. Just, (laughs) just a touch. Unofficial Uh, feedback. feedback Also. Yeah. On the, the unofficial nature of our show, I think was the most poignant of the feedback. Uh... I'm I'm now forgetting the exact quote, but it was bedroom science boys. No, is that straight what it was? from straight from the science boys' bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to just take uh, a minute on the show to address the fact that yes, there is a bed in this room, making it technically a bedroom, <laughs> but nobody sleeps here. <laughs> uh, does anybody else have any feelings about being called a a science boy I, uh... or getting chastised for working from your bedroom? <laughs> For one, I'm a science man, <laughs> and this is an office, not a bedroom. From from a real estate perspective, it's a bedroom, but there is no bed in here. Perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you have anything to say, Nick? Because uh, there was a lot of controversy with, with us getting called out on the show for the nature of the show itself, I guess. And then there was also commentary on genetically modified organisms and just some of the controversy we tried to address. Is there anything you you wanted to say on the topic, Nick? Um, well, I mean, as a, as a starting note, I am broadcasting from a breakfast nook. <laughs> so, like, there's that. Like, this isn't, this isn't a bedroom. Nobody sleeps here. 
Um, like more people have slept <laughs> in the living room over there than right here. Um, I actually, one of my friends from London sent me a text after the episode and wanted to let me know that he thought we'd done really well, like a really good job of, um, everything's frozen for me. Can you guys, are you still, yeah, you guys still hearing me? You seem fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but he wanted to tell me that he thought we did a really good job of discussing the topic objectively. Um, and I don't know, like it's, this is my honest opinion of the matter, but I think it's really easy to, uh, go for an ad hominem attack rather than actually change your views on a topic when you think you know it already. Yep. I think it's also worth noting that none of us are necessarily experts about what we're talking about. And as Robbie mentioned, we're, we're all doing this for fun and in our free time. So, Well, I mean, <laughs> we're not experts, but... We have an understanding. We are trained... Yeah. Like we're I don't know in chemistry anyway you get a basic mm-hmm. understanding of a lot of things so you have and especially if you put in the time to actually read through like literature and stuff like that you will end up knowing more than the general public yeah and that allows us to educate the public yeah. on such topics at least with yeah. a primer yeah for sure yeah. or at least have have a discussion if we're not educating at yeah. le- and if we're not trying to teach we can at least talk about what the issue that is at hand I think we addressed uh, both sides of the is Monsanto bad or good and what the good and bad are of it mm-hmm. fully we weren't on the side of like we weren't, we're not in big Monsanto's pocket yeah. if, <laughs> though we'd be happy to accept sponsorships from anyone willing to <laughs> probably not Monsanto I was going to say <laughs> like, else. Th- that was the one thing I was confident of in the last podcast was that we would not be accused of being in the back pocket of Monsanto because clearly we're not (laughs) clearly the production quality isn't that high I would hope that if Monsanto was sponsoring Uh, us you know we would have a studio or something yeah speaking of production quality uh, before we get to the show I just want to quickly mention that uh, again tech savvy is apparently going to be a thing very soon in Nick's domain which is the last of the three domains yeah. to get what what I'm going to call broadband internet. <laughs> and so hopefully Nick disappearing will be a thing of the of the past come a week or two from now. Are you excited about that, Nick? Fingers crossed, guys. <laughs> I am so stoked. I am so ready for Tech Savvy. Very glad to hear it. Uh, so we'll move on to the actual meat of this episode now. We've, we've done... I would say probably the most prep we've done for any episode in the recent memory. Uh, this well, is a, a you special guys episode. <laughs> well, we we've we all know quite a bit about light, and we did even more work this week to bring a very special science and technology episode because light or electromagnetic radiation is something that we all use in at least five forms every day. And a lot of people, I think, may not be aware of just how much that radiation pl- plays a part in our lives. 
So I think I hope we can do it justice this week, going through all the light from radio waves uh, at the lowest energy up to gamma rays at the highest energy, and just share a lot of thoughts and ideas and discuss each of these kinds of light. And I'm really looking forward to uh, finding out for myself and telling other people about the different kinds of light and what they do, because it's so interesting. Like I, I say this every week, but I just think it's so cool. Science rules, as does technology. That it does. Do we want to give a, a short scientific background on light? Light is something that no matter all the things that we're talking about here travel at what's called the speed of light, which is the, the universal speed limit. Uh, it's about 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, which is so fast that the commonly quoted figure is that it can, light can encircle the Earth 7 times per second approximately, which is just, uh, it's, it's so fast that you can turn on a light switch and it's imperceptible the amount of time it would take to get out of your viewing range. Which, again, it's so cool that we know that in the last few centuries, I guess, it was around, what, 1500s, 1600s we discovered, or we started to narrow down the speed of light from infinite down to an actual number. And the amount of stuff we've done with light and electromagnetic radiation in general in that time is just so fantastic to me and fascinating to read about and learn about. Anyone else want to want to add anything there? Or is that a pretty good overview, in your guys' opinion? Is are, uh, um, maybe we talk about photons well, a little bit? Yeah. I don't know. Just that they're kind of the basis. That was my yeah. point. We should talk about yeah. photons. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll I'll talk about photons. I don't. I I really enjoy photons. So uh, a photon is. <laughs> don't we all? We do more than we know. Most people. Uh, so a photon is a particle of light. We tend to think of light as a wave because in a lot of ways it behaves like a wave and scientifically it is technically both a particle and a wave depending on circumstances. Uh, the mathematics of quantum physics describe it perfectly so far. And so a photon is one single particle of light and it can be a radio wave, it can be uh, a microwave, it can be a visible light wave, it can be heat. It can be ultraviolet light, it can be x-rays, it can be gamma rays, and this is just varying energies in a photon. And so when you have a bunch of photons, you get a, a beam of light, whatever it, whatever the case may be. And so a photon is a very, 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 very small amount of energy, uh, such that I think they say the sun hits Earth with something like 10 to the 19 photons per second like it's just this crazy crazy number of particles of light that are hitting the earth at any given moment even when it's cloudy even when yeah i mean nothing light travels in a vacuum the only thing that can stop it is hitting an atom and that does i mean it happens a lot because there are a lot of atoms too but a lot of light hits earth at any given moment right I think if we're going to get in on a a higher level discussion of light, we should probably say that when you say photon is a particle of light, you don't really mean like a solid 
thing of a particle. You mean like the quanta of light. Yeah. So energy from light or electromagnetic radiation because it's the same thing. Um, it is quantized. So you have the smallest possible package in which light can travel, and that's a photon. Yeah. Now, when I say particle, I don't mean like a speck of light. It's it's a, a word that has a very specific meaning, and it means the smallest possible package of light with a given amount of energy. That energy determined by the wavelength or the frequency. Or both. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it, tomato, tomato, really. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did did are we getting into wave particle duality at some point? We, we will, but I think let's start by going into. We decided we're going to start. We're going to divide up the spectrum, and so Mike, starting with radio waves, Mike, uh, why don't Mike's going to get low? Yeah, Mike's going to get very right? low energy, and start talking about radio waves, which are the lowest form of electromagnetic radiation, but also the coolest. Well, maybe we'll have we'll have a poll at the end and let let the people decide which is the coolest. I feel this may be a losing battle on my end, but um, I'll do my best to convince you guys otherwise. Um, so yeah, there's obviously a uh, electromagnetic or light spectrum broken up into various frequency bands, and radio uh, encompasses anything from I guess zero hertz, uh, that is cycles per second, to uh, three terahertz, I believe, is at least the quoted range that I came up with or saw. Um, and within that band or within that range, you have various divisions of radio waves. Um, so I guess just to kind of go over various uh, uses, if people are like, oh, well, radio, no one listens to the radio anymore. No one uses radio waves. Well, <laughs> here's a thing for you. Lots of things are considered radio waves, even though it's not. I was going to say, well, first, you're an <laughs> idiot person who's saying that. Think before you talk. God. So basically anything in the 0 to 3 terahertz band is considered radio because it's it's often or pretty much any time you transfer data over it, it's in a sinusoidal form versus any other sort of data transfer signal. Um and as far as the various uses for the different ranges of frequency, uh, it goes from anything from just various data transfer where it's low energy, um, low data speeds, you know, 8 bits per second, all the way up to, um, you know, ultra high frequency, super high frequency, where you're talking about, you know, obviously TV signals, um, satellite communication, um, GPS, any of those types of uh, transfers would be, be the higher energy, higher frequency uh, waves um, you know you even have background noise is anything less than about 2 to 3 hertz and some signals are transferred in the 3 to 15 hertz range because they need to be low energy but you still need to get that signal across so obviously you're not going to have a very fast data transfer rate with those um, but it's still useful in certain applications to, to be able to to use those low energy but still have have a appreciable amount of data transfer to use um so can I can I interrupt with a cool thing about very very low frequency radio waves? Yes. They will actually uh, w like a cool thing about electromagnetic radiation is that 
it can if the nature if or if the length of the the wavelength of the particle or the the stream is around the same length as something in the physical world it can bounce off of that like it will not absorb it and it will not go straight through but it'll bounce off you see that with microwaves like that's why microwave radiation doesn't hit you in the face but you also see that with very very low frequencies you can use that to send data at extremely extremely long distances because the radio waves will actually bounce off of the atmosphere and travel can travel much further around the earth in that fashion hmm. cool so if it if it hits something solid it's not going to be limited by a line of sight type aspect yeah. but it can bounce off yeah, exactly. and get around if it needs to i guess that would be the the principle behind wi-fi signals as well correct that wi-fi can rely on deflections off surfaces uh, it can like you can that's why a lot of like sites like Lifehacker will yeah. say you can use a beer can to deflect radio waves in one uh, amplify them in one direction uh, yeah so yeah. things like metal will you usually reflect those kinds of waves yeah. I remember seeing I think it, maybe it was a post on Lifehacker where they I guess some PhD or master's student um, created some sort of illustration or uh, applet that it shows if you have your Wi-Fi router somewhere and then it's sending out the signal and then it kind of shows the propagation of the waves through all the different corners of the house deflect. So if your house is arranged in a certain way, it shows them bouncing off of all the walls and then you can kind of see your dead spots within your house based on if it just doesn't happen to reach that, that part through all the bouncing and stuff. So, yeah, There's also, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if any of you have used Bluetooth. I use Bluetooth about 95% of my life for listening to music and I have noticed that my headphones my Bluetooth headphones with the right ear cup has all the electronics and so if I keep my phone which is the Bluetooth transmitter in my other my opposite back pocket so the Bluetooth waves have to go through me it cuts out all the time because that's around the length of the the uh, Bluetooth frequency and so it'll just cut out but if i put it in my other back pocket if i put it in my front pocket it's totally fine which i just think it's so cool like my body is a natural mm-hmm. <laughs> bluetooth blocker yeah <laughs> but only at only at short distances if i moved it if it, they had to go through my body but i was several like the the transmitter my phone was several wavelengths away it wouldn't stop it because it just it blocks nearby radiation and it's interesting interesting to note that the principle behind the uh the radio transmission is a modulation demodulation uh principle through uh varying voltages converted into sine waves um and then you vary the frequency amplitude or phase of those waves and it gets interpreted by an antenna on the other end and then converted back into whatever data that was uh, originally transmitted so it's 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 really cool the kind of technology that's gone into coming up with ways to send data further and faster and more data and also limiting the amount of data loss that happens during the transmission and uh, those are all challenges and accomplishments that that technology has come up with and it's it's only going to get better as we, we demand more of our of our technology and devices uh, if we want to talk about radio i think it's important to mention for the layperson that uh FM frequency modulation that you mentioned is the the main radio technology, uh, and the other major radio technology is AM, which is amplitude modulation, and there are different ways of doing 
basically the same thing and you can you can tell the difference am is slightly lower quality because amplitude mod modification is not or amplitude modulation is not quite as efficient as frequency modulation yeah well i mean that depends on exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah because i, mean, for, for I believe applications am is uh, lower frequency so it it's able to travel much yeah. further and yeah. i think that's why it's I think it's used for emergency services for that reason because you don't need very good audio quality with that. But with, like the way I heard about it was, you know, if you were trying to pick up the radio from behind a mountain, um, if someone's using amplitude modulation, they're basically increasing or decreasing the signal. So like you could liken it to someone trying to send you a signal with a flashlight so making it brighter or less bright from behind a mountain, you can't really tell, you know, how bright it's supposed to be. But with frequency modulation, that would be more like changing colors. So, you know, you can tell the color from behind a physical obstacle like a mountain, and you can piece together a good intelligible signal. But that's why FM is a higher quality audio experience. Yeah, but over, over shorter ranges, though correct yeah, yeah yeah that's that's the thing yeah that was a really cool analogy nick I enjoyed yeah i that. like that too <laughs> oh thank you it's not mine i read it <laughs> I, somewhere I else i figured it wasn't yours but it's very interesting yeah. nevertheless it's also interesting to note that one of the two of the bands i guess or two of the ranges is uh very high frequency and ultra high frequency vhf and uhf and if any anyone in our generation has seen a uh, a tape recorder or or a stereo you'll see vhf or uhf on there a what? And so, you know, as a kid, I was like, what VHF, UHF, what, what does that mean? So it just means that it's capable of picking up those different frequencies depending on what signal it's trying to get. So, Yeah. And another application of radio technology in everyday life, the number you, you hear, like Live 88.5, means it's broadcasting at 88.5 megahertz, which is just the, the specific frequency of the light, which I think is... Just a cool everyday thing that you don't really think about, but it's science. Yeah. Science. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to jump around, or do you want to keep going, Mike? Let's up the frequency scale. I don't know. I think you have some stuff to talk about with uh, our favorite visible light spectrum. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump up to sort of the middle of the range. Getting so into... wait, is this is this our favorite within the visible light range, or visible no, light is, is our just, favorite? Because just... I would dispute that. <laughs> Everyone's. This is my. This is my yeah, favorite. Commonly held favorite. Oh, okay. Or most familiar, maybe. Yeah. So because this is a science and tech episode, I wanted to highlight something cool that I that I was reading about recently, uh, including visible light. And that's synthetic synthetic photosynthesis, which is way too complicated to say. Uh, so photosynthesis is something that has been going on on our planet for about a billion years. The first life, or some of the very first life on Earth used photosynthesis. And recently, biochemists and biotechnologists have been able to recreate that process using electronics. They've been able to take, they've been able to adapt molecules that you find in plants that generate uh, that take sunlight and convert it into chemical energy. And they've been able to do the same thing, but converting it, either converting it to chemical energy or converting it into electrical energy directly, which is the eventual goal, is to generate electricity with this. And so I think it's 
it's just it's fun to talk about and worth pointing out that applications of technology coming from light are just so numerous synthetic photosynthesis the fact that we can take one of nature's most fundamental processes for converting our sun's energy into energy that we can actually use either for food or for electricity i just like it's so cool being alive in this age where we're using all of these kinds of scientific advancements for cool technologies like this does it work on a different principle than than solar cells or is it a similar concept uh it's similar so solar cells tend to use they can use uh they can use a wider i think it's technically a wider range of light sources uh they will like a typical solar cell will use a semiconductor to just turn like the to hit the the solar panel with a, a light particle causing an electron to jump into the the conducting gap in the semiconductor and then it converts that electron goes down the stream and it's electricity whereas synthetic photosynthesis works in a similar way to photosynthesis in that it takes incident light which i think i think that it was close enough to the plant photosynthesis that it uses the same green light or no was it it was red light uh that so green on our plants is green because of chlorophyll which is the thing the the apparatus in a plant that does photosynthesis and so they adapted those particles those photosynthetic particles to their own uh to their own uh energy source and then the 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 point of using photosynthesis instead of using a solar uh a regular solar panel is that photosynthesis is extremely efficient so it takes almost all of the incident light and because the chemical converter is able to re to accept so many more photons and it's able to recycle the process much more frequently you end up getting a much higher yield from your incident light than you do with a solar cell which is somewhere between 1 and 10% i think depending on the the technology they're, that's used they're getting better i believe yeah, they are getting better um what what uh, molecules is the is the photosynthetic method creating basically what it does is it triggers a chemical change in a molecule in chlorophyll that is then passed through a series of double bonds which so it it's it's almost like a catalyst to a reaction uh so a light particle will activate a, a molecule to to a secondary reaction that will turn uh, a less complex sugar into a more complex sugar. So there are steps that, because the when you're talking about photosynthesis, uh, it's it's taking energy, which is usually in the form of sugars in plants. So it's taking carbon dioxide and water and step by step converting it until it's a plant sugar, like sucrose or fructose, or not sucrose, sorry, like fructose. Uh, or glucose in some cases. Um, and so, yeah, that's... The energy that's being created is activation energy to make those chemical reactions to form sugars. Uh, do we want to... Uh, actually, I'll stick on solar power here for a minute. Just because 
Uh, I read this article this in this past week that Google is stopping research in renewable technology. And this is kind of, it's a, it's a shame because you still hear people talking because it's wintertime again. They're, they're misquoting scientists and saying that global warming is not a thing. And scientists have stopped say, stopped using words like global, global cooling like they did in the 70s and 80s. And they've stopped using terms like global warming. We're now talking about climate change. So this, this profound cold that is coming about seemingly every year now over the entire continental United States is, is climate change. The climate is changing. This doesn't always happen, and now it's happening more and more often. Our winters are getting very cold fast. Our summers are hotter than they've ever been. The climate's changing. And so what Google found is throughout their research in renewable technology and their investments in renewable technology, they found that even in the best case scenario, they were with current technology, they were going to end up with runaway greenhouse effect. Or at least that's the concern. It may not actually happen, but given current projections, that seems to be the more and more likely outcome. And so they they basically they haven't given up on on climate change, but they're saying even with the best case, what we have to do is stop polluting. We can't just depend on renewable energy taking over because it's not going to happen fast enough to make a difference. And so this is something that scientists kind of have to keep saying over and over again for people to listen. And and I really hope that sometime in the next, hopefully a couple of years, but within the next 10 years at least, will continue becoming a thing. Is it is it still the main hurdle being battery technology that's kind of holding further advancements back? Like even when it comes to electric cars and then storing energy for solar panels and that kind of thing. Is that kind of what we're all waiting for the next hurdle? Is a leap in battery technology? That would definitely help because it would allow us... Right now, the main problem with, with renewable energy, as we talked about in the renewable energy episode is that we can't store this the power that we're generating. So when it's cloudy, there's no solar power, the system doesn't work. Yeah. And then there's just... also the issue of uh sorry, there's also the issue of smart grids, like electrical grids that are capable of handling variable uh loads and supplies. Like that proves challenging apparently. Yeah, it, it's challenging, and w- w- I'm sure we're going to get to it, but for the time being, it's very tricky, and we're working on it as fast as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> Nick, why don't we go to you now, and we'll talk <gasps> about something something that's above ultraviolet light. Above <laughs> ultraviolet light? Well, uh, in my opinion... This is where you get to the most exciting part of the, the electromagnetic spectrum because this is the part of the spectrum where you can start talking to the elements. Um, UV. Well, you can talk it, to them before. Well, you start being able to probe them better, I suppose. Uh, UV light is when it starts happening. You can start, uh, like if you see a colorful chemical species like copper sulfate in water or, you know, copper in water. Anyway, um, by shining ultraviolet light on that and looking at, 
you know, looking at the absorption or transitions through a detector or something like that, you can start seeing where the energy levels of those specific chemical elements fall in those specific environments. But uh, x-rays are are really where you start getting interesting. Um, so as Rob was saying earlier, uh, when you have a wave of light and it encounters, you know, a barrier that is roughly the same size as the wavelength, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you look at a grain of salt or something like that, you're looking at a crystal and the spacing between those atoms are extremely regulated, regular within that crystal. And it's in the X-ray range where the size of the wavelength starts matching up with the interatomic distance between those atoms. But especially in ordered crystals, you can throw X-rays at it at varying degrees or various degrees of incidence and then measure on the other side to see where they're bouncing back. And from that, you can actually tell the crystal structure of uh, crystals. And I honestly find that fascinating. That's where you can see like the physical structure that um, the elements take around you. But it's that range where you can also start probing the individual atoms to figure out what atom you have. So I did work with x-ray fluorescence. So in an atom, you have the nucleus. I assume we're all familiar with that. Yes. (laughs) Okay, good. I really wanted to make sure before moving on. But uh, the next couple energy levels out, or the next couple electron shells out, those are called the core electrons. And their energy level doesn't usually change just because they're so close to the nucleus and... They're shielded from the outside because of all the electrons on top of them. But if I can't remember the exact energy you have to use for it. I want to say it's like 100 kilo electron volts or something like that. But you can start pelting a sample with that. And it will be at the energy required to promote an elect- a core electron from its current state to an infinite distance which basically means you've dissociated the electron from the atom. But then you have a hole in the core there. And when you have a hole in the core, the upper electrons will start falling down and trying to fill that hole. But every time a higher electron falls down, it emits a photon. And so it's from those photons that you can tell what element you're actually looking at. So just... On a lark, we decided to test some jewelry that someone had been given. No, it was really cool, but you could tell, like, in the with the XRF, you could tell the purity of the gold that you were analyzing because of all the signals from the other alloying elements and the you know the various intensity of them. And you could also tell what was a real diamond from what was cubic zirconia because you shine the x-ray beam at the rock and all of a sudden you'll either start seeing 
big zirconium signals, or you'll see nothing at all, because carbon, as far as XRF is concerned, is too low, so it doesn't have enough higher energy levels for that cascade of higher electrons falling down to actually get those signals, so it just shows up as nothing. But that's XRF, and that is so ridiculously cool. And that's that's related somewhat to X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy. And I'm a little foggy on the details because I haven't done it in a very long while. But that's where you start. You have to do it in a very high vacuum environment because the photons you're looking for are not very energetic at all or or they're not there aren't a lot of them and since they're such high energy they scatter a lot which we will talk about later i believe when we're talking about sunsets yeah so you need to have an extremely high vacuum in order to be able to measure it but like i said when you're monitoring the core signals like the highest energy signals you're determining what element you're talking about. But I said they were shielded by the higher electrons. Once you get out to the higher, like the valence states, so the outermost electron shells, uh, the energies you'll measure there are affected by the chemical environment. So it's at that point that you can tell, you know, strictly metallic aluminum from the aluminum that has become an oxide on the surface of the metal. Or, I can't talk about it too much still because confidentiality agreements, but I was able to look at a couple signals so I could see, you know, a signal from, the, it was a core shell nanoparticle, and the shell is almost always platinum because reasons but I could see the platinum signal and I could see the platinum oxide signal and there was this one other signal that wasn't really in the formal literature and so I knew from that signal that the platinum had alloyed with the other element I was working with and that's just really cool you can actually see what the elements are doing based on this, the signals you read and I mean then there's x-rays for like boring things like medical diagnoses <laughs> you can see through people and, that, and stuff yeah well rob and i have both experienced those various injuries i'm not sure if you have mike no, we have just my teeth but even oh nice yeah oh yeah we've all had those but uh the reason that yep. those work the way they do is x-rays can penetrate soft tissues very easily but the harder tissues it can't penetrate. And so it's in the x-ray region where it has to do with the elements and, you know, bones and teeth versus soft tissues. But it's that range where you're able to start distinguishing these things. Yeah. And that was the first use of x-rays when... <laughs> do we know how to pronounce his name? Ronchin? Yeah, that guy. Yeah. That was the first... Uh, thing that he did with them was take an x-ray of his wife's hand and you could see her bones and the by accident right i don't actually remember 
Oh, that no, that was the first one. But he initially discovered them by having a. He had some sort of photographic plate that he accidentally exposed with some uranium or something. I think that was the first one. Nick, you remind me of um, of one process when you're talking about detection and how they monitor solar activity. And I can't remember off the top of my head which particle or which radiation they're trying to detect, but it's the one that they catch the radiation in like a giant pool of water. And then it like neutrinos. Oh yeah, the neutrinos, yeah. And then uh yeah, that's that's how they can tell the activity of the sun based on how many neutrinos they detect in this giant pool. Yeah. Those wimps. The what? <laughs> the wimps? The wimps. Weekly interacting massive particles. Yeah. I don't know. I just when I heard that they just had these giant tanks of water solely to detect these tiny particles that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise it was like wow that's heavy cool. water too yeah. it's heavy water it's very expensive yeah. <laughs> um they just get liters and liters of it gallons and gallons well, it's like i think it's hundreds or thousands of liters because like they fill an old mine shaft with it these big spheres of heavy water anyway it's also at that region because the Sorry, when I talk about, like, you know, ejecting an electron, that is called ionization because you're creating an ion. You're ionizing a chemical species, and that makes it ionizing radiation. And that's when you have to start being careful about your health. So you get an appreciable radiation dosage from an X-ray, and that's why, you know, pregnant women have to be very careful Um usually get a lead apron over your reproductive bits for to, to protect protect them but uh, you also have to start wearing monitors once you've started working with things like x-rays and when you get to even higher energies you get to gamma rays and they are usually only produced when you're talking about a nuclear I think they're only usually produced by uh, yeah nuclear processes. I yeah, either fission or fusion. Can you get them from a synchrotron? Do we know if it's doing nuclear fusion or fission? <laughs> so probably not. I think you could, in theory, you could, but it would take ridiculous yeah. amounts of energy. I'm not sure. Yeah, they probably. Do that. So anyway, that's just a nuclear plant <laughs> at that. Yeah, point. I suppose. Anyway, gamma rays. So um, they become high enough energy that you can start using them for taking x-rays of metal samples and things like that so you can find defects within metal samples without actually cutting them open you can just take an x-ray but you have to use very high energy sources and so i believe we're familiar with the story of the hulk um dr bruce banner was it was hit by gamma rays and all of a sudden he became the incredible hulk Turns out that doesn't really happen. Um, Although, arguably, it's worse what actually happens. Yeah. Like, the people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the atomic bombs were dropped, they would much rather be the Hulk than what ended up happening. Because what happens is uh, it ionizes the atoms in your DNA to a point where the DNA has lost its useful information. 
or useful from our perspective anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it's bad. Like you, you will either start experiencing a lot of different cancers because that can result from it, or you'll just have these weird mutations that will suddenly show up. But in most cases, your cells just lose their ability to properly replicate and you die shortly thereafter. And it's terrible because the radiation doesn't kill you instantly, You, but you're a dead person walking from the instant you've been hit with a lethal dose. Yeah. Normally that comes from the loss of your immune system. Your white blood cells are particularly vulnerable no. to these. And then once once you lose your immune system, an infect, a simple infection is usually what ends up killing someone that's had been dosed with a lot of radiation because they just have no ability to fight even simple colds or, or simple viruses. Makes a lot of sense. But uh, on the other side of that coin, if you focus the radiation very intensely, you can obliterate things like cancerous tumors for similar reasons to do with, you know, obliterating DNA and things like that. And that's also how you can, uh, I believe they, they sterilize, uh, viruses and vaccinations that way, I think maybe because they, they obliterate the DNA. So it's incapable of reproducing, but your body, your body's anti or your body's immune system will still recognize those viruses create the relevant antibodies and then you're protected against them cool so radiation actually has there it's an interesting research field i have a friend who does research in radiation and there's a lot of neat stuff that they're coming out with because you can make all these things with radiation rather than using harsh chemicals but you definitely have to be careful with them because you won't be as lucky as Dr. Bruce Banner. So on that on that note, why don't we switch why don't we downgrade a few notches, a few orders of magnitude and go back to I think what we'll do cuz we're not we're not necessarily long on time. We will go I hope you're okay Mike going to ultra high frequency cuz we still haven't talked yet about all of the coolest from a technology perspective all of the coolest uh, I told you the coolest applications <laughs> to do already. <laughs> to do yeah. it. Oh, internet. the internet. All right. Yeah. Well, we we did kind of briefly mention Wi-Fi. We we mentioned we Wi-Fi signals. So, yeah. um, I guess yeah, the ultra high frequency contains the higher, the three hundred to three thousand megahertz or point three to three gigahertz uh, frequency band. Um, and for those who have had cordless phones in the past. Uh, it'll be 900 megahertz or 2.4 i think 2.4 is for phones as well yeah and then pretty much any other wireless devices this is also 2.4 so or five um what's that five gigahertz as well five gigahertz dual band wi-fi uses 2.4 and five gigahertz oh okay then that would take it outside of ultra high and put into super high then but anyway still (laughs) same technology anyway um but yeah, so I guess that that band, because so many devices use it, it's very regulated as far as what devices can use what frequency band um, so that people aren't just using... They want to standardize some things so that devices can all kind of talk to each other. 
Um, but that also causes issues when two devices are trying to use the same frequency band and they can interfere with each other and cause cause noise if um, if they're just trying to do the same thing at the same time kind of thing. And I think that's, maybe I'm interpreting incorrectly, but when someone's phone goes off and the speaker does its uh, resonating, then that's kind of the same. Yeah. They're operating on the same frequency. The the yeah the edge network was particularly susceptible susceptible to that sort of the two point nine uh, G. Bef- right before just before three G came into vogue, uh, that network was particularly susceptible to <laughs> uh, interference from speakers. We're getting getting feedback. You'd sort of hear the signal, like almost like you would on a dial up yeah. modem. Um, and yeah, you know, you mentioned Bluetooth, so Bluetooth operates in that same that same frequency band and GPS and um, microwaves, microwave ovens, TVs. They all they're all in that kind of sweet spot of frequency bandwidth. Um, and yeah, it, you know, honestly, they all operate in the same principle of signal modulation and demodulation, and they're all able to talk to each other depending on on what it is they're listening for. So. Um, I actually thought now that we're we're talking about it, radio astronomy is is kind of a cool application for for radio waves. Um, oh my God, yes! And uh, so I don't. Know Mike, if heard have of you been any... to the? <laughs> Go ahead. Nick. Sorry, no. have you been to the the radio observatory in the Rockies? No. <sighs> Go! It's amazing. <laughs> is it the Dominion Radio Observatory or something like that? so cool yeah like the the waves they're monitoring like the wavelengths are like on the meter scale or something Mm -hmm. like that so you go out and they have all these telephone poles that are like several meters across with an array of wires between the whole thing it's beautiful Hmm. cool sorry no (laughs) please continue cool um but i don't know if everyone everyone's heard of the cosmic microwave background um and that's kind of the fundamental discovery that kind of proved or gave solidification to the Big Bang. And uh, I guess the the signal matched their prediction in essence perfectly, as perfectly as you can expect when it comes to scientific observations. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's that type of technology where when you tune your your telescope, and not a telescope in a conventional lens and light sense, but in a device that can take in the waves and read them um when it when you tune it to whatever frequency you're looking for then you can kind of see what things are emitting that radiation and um since things in space can have emissions of a certain wavelength in the type of range that we're able to look for then you can map that out and kind of see what's out there yeah i actually again the cosmic microwave background radiation discovery was an accident as well. They first built, uh, I guess it was a giant microwave telescope, is basically what it was, to aim out into space. Like, it was a huge one. And they kept getting, no matter what they did to try to reduce noise, they kept getting this signal. No matter what they did, they like they eventually discovered that there was bird poop inside <laughs> the dish and like cleaned it out they made it perfect and there was still this background noise and they started so they started moving the telescope around looking and they were discovering slight variations across the sky uh and eventually discovered that this wasn't 
noise. This was literally a signal that was coming from the universe. <laughs> and it wasn't oh. pigeon poop. Nope. <laughs> that time that science discovered that the cosmic uh, microwave background was not poop. Yep. It was yeah. a good time. <laughs> so yeah, basically I guess I guess as far as as far as that frequency band like because all these devices are using it, you literally as you're walking around you have just tons and tons of waves just passing through you and hitting you because all these devices are talking to each other and sending signals back and forth and thankfully we're not affected by it not in any detrimental way that's caused them to be outlawed but <laughs> people still have their unless that one that science fair project is to be believed where they were trying to test the hypothesis uh, the hypothesis that wi-fi was killing oh really life hmm. they it, it was never scientifically rigorously proven but they did an experiment that obviously had some uncontrolled variable that was showing that Wi-Fi was causing plant life to die compared to the control. Yeah. But, it's uh, it's interesting now that we're talking about the effects of radiation or waves, I guess, is um, recently I watched a, a very informative and entertaining video on the nocebo effect, and it was by our favorite uh, YouTuber, CGP Grey. CGP Grey? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I saw, saw a video on the nocebo and I heard about it before but this video was actually really good and, and well put together and I guess the whole point being that people will tend to, to believe they have they're, they're able to notice when say a Wi-Fi router is turned on and they'll start getting headaches or nauseous or whatever and then when it's turned off they'll feel better but only when they're told that it's on do they feel the effects even if it's on and they're not they don't know it's on they're not going to feel it and I guess the whole point being that it's not that their symptoms are that they're faking their symptoms like the symptoms are real but the cause is the fact that they think they're supposed to be getting the symptom not that it's actually being caused by the router like the signal itself um and it, it applies to a bunch of different things it's the same thing if if someone walks in and like be careful it like smells really bad and there you're more likely to like oh yeah that does like smell bad like if if you're if you're expecting something to happen you're more likely to actually experience it even if it's not actually there in the first place it's the same thing with um wind turbines or uh i don't know power lines all that kind of stuff if there's all the stuff in the media that says that it causes headaches or causes this or that and people get those symptoms because they're told that it's going to give them those symptoms <clears throat> i thought it was fun that one of the experiments they did in, with the case of wi-fi is they had a, a router set up that the lights on it were separate from its function, so it had it had the normal lights on the, that you'd see on a router. But they could t they could leave the router on, but turn the lights on and off, and they could see people's reactions turn on and off with the lights, but not with the yeah. function. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. That's that's one of the reasons I always try to be like, I, like everything that happens, some sort of negative physical effect. I sit there and I go. Is it possible? Is there any way that this isn't real? And I mean, sometimes it doesn't go away, but a lot of the times I'm like, oh, no, I'm it's fine. It's something yeah. else. It was just no it's, it's funny. There's in that CGP Grey video, um, and this may be a spoiler alert. So for those of you who are going to go watch it for yourself, don't listen. For If you haven't seen it, go check yeah. out the link that's going to be here um, first. I don't know. He does this little thing at the beginning, and then I, I don't know. I don't want to spoil it. So for those of you who, who are doing it, but I don't know. 
Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll give spoiler alert. alert. Okay, tune out for like 30 seconds if you don't want to get as well. But at the beginning, he says, it's like, oh, this tone that you're hearing, you're going to get a headache. And it's been shown to give headaches. And at this frequency, it's imperceptible to our, to our ears, but it's going to give you a headache. And then as I was listening to it, I'm like, I don't feel I have a headache. I was like, and I'm waiting for the headache to come. I'm like, maybe that's my headache. And then I was like trying to find the headache. And then I'm like, maybe that's okay, kind of. And then he's like, oh, it's like the trick's on you is that you're actually not supposed to get a headache because there is no tone and there's nothing. But he's like, oh, but, you know, however many of you probably did get it, start getting a headache because you were told you were going to get one. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of weird because I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I, I'm not getting a headache. I was like, should I be getting a headache? Yeah, and then is I'm like, oh, maybe, and then I started looking for a headache to have, and I'm sure for some people, if you did long enough, like, oh, man, my head hurts, even though, like, like there's nothing causing it, but your head does remember, hurt, but the cause isn't anything in particular, it's just the fact that you think you should have one. I remember watching that video, and, like, I had my headphones in for yeah. it, and so I was like, you know, I, d- I don't feel any different, like, maybe it's just my headphones, like, maybe they're not broadcasting that particular frequency that he's shooting for right now because i don't actually feel any different yeah (laughs) (laughs) i blamed it on the headphones i watched the video on mute until it started what do you mean (laughs) not gonna lie i didn't listen to the sound (laughs) i just didn't when it said this video will hurt that was the name of the title of the video i was like nope if there's any if there's any chance a YouTube video right. might have a jump scare in it at some point, I I scrub over the entire right. thing to make sure there isn't one before I watch it. I don't want to be caused yeah. pain or or surprise in any way. <laughs> anyway, that's that's yep. ultra high frequency for you. <laughs> are are you okay if we move on to yeah back to the visible or the yeah. the IR to do it. So. Uh, Nick, you had mentioned ionizing radiation, and so the ultraviolet is technically where that starts for organic molecules. Okay, yeah. And, yeah, so one of the reasons that, like, melanoma is, skin cancer is so closely related to sun exposure is that the sun contains, or gives off a lot of UV radiation that gets, a lot of it gets through our atmosphere, some of it gets trapped by the ozone layer, but a lot of it does get through and clouds do not block. They block visible light, but they don't block UV at all. And so you can get a sunburn even on a cloudy day or even in the winter. And well, yeah, exactly. It doesn't, if the sun's out, you're less likely to get it in the winter because the sun's at a lower angle. So it's going through more atmosphere and it's going to, the atmosphere itself is going to block more, but it doesn't mean that you're, you're, it's impossible. And so UV UVA and UVB are the ranges that are generally quoted. And that's the point where when you're getting the UV radiation is going to cause good, like there are good things that happen when you get hit by UV rays. And one of them is that your body creates vitamin D from from these rays. Your body uses that high energy light ray to generate this vitamin that you don't get from, or you can get from your diet, but you don't make otherwise. You don't like there. There's been a lot of research showing that the seasonal affective disorder that seems to be a medical issue is related to vitamin D, and that oh. you don't get as much in the winter. Interesting. 
And that's why, yeah, some people get or prescribed vitamin D supplements in the winter to, to combat this. And it's as simple as they say you only need like 15 minutes of sun exposure in a day to get that. And so you can go out. Like a lot of one of the reasons that you that this happens even if you do go outside is that you're all bundled up. So the only part of you that's visible is a small circle on your face if you live in Canada mm-hmm. and you're not crazy. Yeah, like I was going to say, like uh, the last couple times I've been to the doctor, they brought up vitamin D because I think that's a pretty big topic in the medical community right now is doctors to recommend taking vitamin D supplements. But I know at least the doctors I've been to, they've said that especially in a place like Canada, even even during the summer, you're not going to get enough sunlight to give you vitamin D. Like, because like you said, you're covered up pretty much ever except your arms and your face. Um, and it's just like... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they were trying to say it as if it was like a myth that you got enough vitamin D from being outside, but it's not like again, just in our culture and our in our climate, you don't get enough vitamin D from sun exposure alone. So regardless of whether it's summer or winter, we're going outside less and less. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going outside less and less, and so yeah. it's even more important that if you don't go outside, yeah. you're not getting enough. If I think if you do go outside, you you will get less than you would in a tropical region, but. I think the point that those that doctors are trying to make is that we don't go outside yeah. enough to get enough vitamin D, and it we're also at a slightly higher altitude, which means the sun's lower in the sky and there's more atmosphere. The sun's at a lower angle, so we get it for less time, and it the sun also the light has to go through yeah. more atmosphere to get. They, to they are adding vitamin D to milk now, though, right? I believe. Yeah. Uh, is yeah, it just some milk? Some, I don't okay. know that it's all, but it's definitely some. I've definitely seen it in there. Uh, I also want to talk about just this again, this sort of goes back to I I put a note in here that I want to talk about the sensation of the the sensation or perception of light waves. And so the main one that we think about is visible light hitting our eyes. We can sense different colors. We can tell them apart because of uh, the different rods and cones in our eyes, which are sensitive to different wavelengths of light being i think it's red green and blue yeah. are the three types of cones i think they're cones <laughs> yeah i think it's cones too and so we evolved we eventually when we first started out we had uh, like organisms early earth organisms that had eyes could perceive whether it was light or whether it was dark they could sense variation in lighting but they had no colored discernation. And then eventually we'd be able to, we, we could sense color. And I think it was probably red that came up first just because it's the lowest energy. It tends to be the, the one we associate most with dark. And then eventually we, we now humans have what's called trichromism where we have three different kinds of cones that can detect three different colors. And so we can perceive the colors we see around us and color blindness tends to be losing one of or not having one of those sets of cones or having them not function properly and so you end up seeing you're missing out on that third color and so what you end up happening what ends up happening is you you perceive whatever cone you're missing you perceive colors things that are like that color as either one or the other of the two that are remaining and so you lose if you can't see if you can't discern blue i don't i forget what the i'm not colorblind so i forget what the the color you can't see is but you lose the ability to sense one yeah. third of there's, the available colors, and so you see everything. Yeah, in there's like a red-green sort of. color blind that you get. 
Yeah. Yeah. You can't tell red and green apart. Yeah, and, and then I think like the same thing. Yeah, I think there's a blue one as well. I know red and green for sure. I can't remember if there's a blue one. Well, but the red and green color blindness, I think. Oh man, I yeah, I haven't looked into this enough, but I think I believe I've seen that dogs. Dogs are one example of a dichromic organism, and so they're colorblind from the beginning. They can see less color than us, and I think the spectrum they see is fr- is between blue and yellow. So they don't have really a red. It's um. Uh, just yeah, like, it's kind of like I think an orangey sort of thing to blue. I remember because like like a, a Michael Bay movie type <laughs> spectrum. It's uh, you can see blue and orange. That's I remember that's, it because I saw like a visual representation of what dogs can see or something like that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Our dog at at home, Bailey, her favorite toy is one that is blue and orange. So I wonder if that's like what they were shooting for like a visual contrast for a dog that would look pleasing to a dog right hmm. that's cool does it look pleasing to a human do you or do you think it's like ugly no i think it looks nice but it's <laughs> like there's okay. a frisbee and a ball like a big it it's called her squishy ball because it's a big squishy ball and you can throw it without making a hell of a noise right and they're both made by a brand <laughs> called chuck it the frisbee she has is nice. we call it chuck it god but she loves those <laughs> uh and so on a on a simpler note going back to color, or light we can sense we can sense heat although we don't really think about it infrared light light that's slightly just below the visible spectrum is is something that interacts very well with solid surfaces on the on the very surface of them and so the sun gives off a lot of infrared radiation and we sense it when you go outside or when you're put your arm under a heat lamp what you're getting there is your nerves are being activated by infrared light and we sense that as heat because it's the most likely to burn like to to literally heat up our Mm -hmm. flesh but it only does it right at the surface so it tends to if you go under light for that long or if you put meat in the oven it'll cook from the outside mm-hmm. in slowly heat. so that's that's different than convective heat right like it's not something being heated and then that thing heating something else it's your skin directly being energized by the conduction yeah there yeah like a, an oven for instance would use convection and around it would to move cook hot it yeah. Air around yeah yeah but it's heat is conductive right. but it's not like when you cut, when you're in the shower and you're getting heated by steam, that's not the same as infrared radiation heating you. That's just hot water right, that's, that you're feeling. Yeah, yeah, hot water touching you. Yeah, but that is that that is technically a very similar phenomenon in that heat is transferred through infrared radiation. We just if a if a drop is on your arm, it just doesn't have far to go. It's it's the molecules in the water and the molecules in your skin reaching a thermal equilibrium by transferring infrared radiation back back and forth or or in one direction i guess from hot to cold well not not and, just uh, the infrared radiation about, though sorry go ahead sorry it, it's not just infrared radiation it's right, not just, it's actually yeah. transferring thermal energy yeah that's that that's kind of what I was getting at was the difference between transferring thermal energy and infrared radiation yeah okay sorry i just Is there that a wasn't difference? clear well, yeah, they're different. Like, infrared radiation is photons, oh, yeah. and 
Thermal energy is phonons. Are, is that is that a separate yeah, thing? It's I think it's the quantum of vibration or something like that. Yeah, it's a it's a more kinetic type energy transfer, like because you know if you put infrared radiation on a particle, it'll start vibrating, right? That's temperature. Yeah, I think they're very closely related, if not the same thing. So. <laughs> I think we should save this for the after right, show. You agree with me, right? Like, you you agree with me that infrared radiation causes molecules to vibrate, which causes them to raise in temperature. Yes. So, I mean, I've never I've heard of the word phonon, but I've never heard it used in that context. It's maybe we sh- we should yeah. we'll address it in the okay. after have show. Have a separate like, I mean, heat topic. Yeah, I mean, if you have something warm that's like, you know, being draped over you. It will transfer infrared energy because it is giving off heat and that will transfer heat. But there's also going to be direct thermal conduction. I think. Yes. I th- I want to say that on a quantum level, maybe I'm wrong, but I want to say on a quantum level it's okay, transferring so, infrared Okay, so when, okay. when you heat, say, the center of like a metal plate and the heat spreads, like thermal conductivity, like we all know... Mm-hmm. Between molecules, yeah. is that infrared radiation that's transferring between the molecules, or is it molecules directly exciting each other? I think it's. I don't. The molecules never technically touch unless they're bonded. In a more macro sense, maybe. Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. But on a quantum level, I think it's infrared. Okay. We'll, we, we'll look. We it. shall. And if we can't address it in the after show, we'll talk about it. I was going to say, do follow up next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so the last thing, because we, I'll only mention it because we teased it, because we're going very long here, we're not even <laughs> after show yet, but uh, I just want to talk about the difference, why, why the sky is blue is a common question that gets asked in science textbooks and in science classes and in YouTube videos about science. Uh, and so I just wanted to briefly say, are we, the sky sorry, is Sorry, are we, are, we, are we going to rally and, and provide an answer? I think we should. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to go into the Raleigh scattering of <laughs> of light, but that is what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there's a phenomenon uh, that in the physical world that you're just going to have to take. You can look up Raleigh scattering if you want at a later point or after this episode. But uh, blue light tends to get scattered more than red light does. So the, the higher energy particles tend to get scattered more and it's quite a bit more it's to the fourth power uh the amount of the amount of scattering based on wavelength and so the sky is blue because we see blue light getting scattered a lot the sun's beating down we see only blue light and the red light tends to get it doesn't get scattered as much and so it it loses the the quantitative battle for getting to our eyes and then the opposite happens when you're looking at a sunset because what you have is the sun you're you're usually looking directly at the sun and you're looking at it through a lot of atmosphere because you're looking at it at a very low angle and so all the blue light has been scattered before it gets to your eyes and so the red light wins out in that case and all you see is red and again 
just a really cool phenomenon, great explanation, something that you, you can't really teach a child, but people should understand why the sky is blue and it's like it's really cool. If you look if you look at the sky you see blue and if you look at the sun you see white because it's all the colors. But you don't see the red because the red isn't winning any battles. It's it the red is trapped inside that white light. It's not getting split. But if you look elsewhere in the sky you're going to see this, all the scattered blue light. Yep. I hope that was a a low level and yet informative <laughs> explanation as much as I well, can. Well, I also teased that earlier because, like, the higher energy you get, the more light scatters, and that's why X-rays you have to do under very high vacuum. Otherwise, they just scatter end- endlessly until they're converted into, you know, heat energy or something like that. Yep. Anything else you want to say on the on the topic of light before we really after show? No, I okay. I think we've been enlightened here today. <laughs> I sure hope so. I know we're, I feel we're, very we're, enlightened. I think we came across as very bright during this episode. Yeah. Oh no, this is <laughs> keep stalling. I need to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> Would you? Uh, Hopefully, you get a uh, wave I, of feedback. <clears throat> if you get if you get <laughs> Vietnamese soup with wontons in it, would you call that photon soup? Rob's gone. <laughs> uh, all right, we're gonna we're gonna wrap. Oh, up Rob's ready. Week. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this is episode thirty nine of Future Chat. We're really glad that you are here. Uh, you can find us online at futurechat.me. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes if you if you enjoyed the show. We're also on Stitcher Radio, and we'll see you next week for another riveting episode of Future Chat. That almost sounded sarcastic. <laughs> no, what what happened is I really had to cough. <laughs> and I had to get it out as fast as possible. Nice. Yeah. So we have a few topics for the after show now. Do we? Well, let's let's talk about heat cuz the the nuclear energy is more not as related to this topic. Uh well, do you want to save that for next week, or do you want to save what for next week? No, the nuclear binding energy, the the heat, the heat discussion. We could just do oh, we could just do yeah, heat might... as our topic. <laughs> Quasi particle. It represents an excited state in the quantum mechanical quantization of the modes of vibration. What phonon? Yeah. Condensed matter physics. Shorter wavelength, higher frequency phonons give rise to heat. Uh, long wavelength phonons give rise to sound. Yeah, so a phonon is a quantum mechanical description of an elementary vibrational motion in a lattice of atoms. So the high wavelengths ones would have to do with heat transfer, yes? Heat. Or low. Yeah. Whichever it was. Low, I think it was. Shorter wavelength, higher frequency. It's funny, I was okay. at a... Uh... I was at a trade or an expo, I guess, that was trying to sell like whatever gadgets. Like I don't know, you guys have probably both been to the Stampede showcase, like thing with all the booths and they're trying to sell the gadgets. I don't. Do you know what I'm talking about, Nick? No. Anyway. I only went to the post flood one, and apparently there wasn't very much that year. Okay. 
anyway, they're trying to do demonstrations and hawk whatever gadgets they were trying to sell. Um, and there were a couple different, like, infrared wave ovens with, like, lids that, like, could cook an entire chicken kind of thing in five minutes or whatever. But I guess they were trying to, like, pass it off as, like, revolutionary technology. And I'm like, this is just infrared heating. There's nothing... But the people, like, explaining it, I think they probably thought it was revolutionary because they didn't seem to know much about, like, the actual principles behind it. I think one was even like, oh, it uses, like infrared wave technology or whatever like her like she even ended it with or whatever or like, like yeah that's that's a thing <laughs> yeah, that's true it does that's not new uh, so i want to start just uh i want to i'm i'm probably going to write about this at some point i hope so just because it it goes off on our our topic on government funding of science so i did my masters in nmr nuclear magnetic resonance we've talked about it on past episodes uh and the nmr facility has officially announced that it's being shut down the magnet is being demagnetized the big 900 megahertz magnet is being demagnetized in december because it takes several months of technicians to do it so that it doesn't you can quench a superconducting magnet and it will just blow off a bunch of helium as steam helium smoke uh but they're going to do it in a controlled way. And so it takes several months and they're, they, the lease is up in March. And this is this huge tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars facility that has had research going on at it every day for the its entire duration. And it's now being shut down due to lack of funding from our beautiful Canadian government. And so they're, they're going through a rallying cry. They're saying, basically, it's not too late. We have technically, we have a month to try to secure more funding and they're really just sort of making a plea to anyone that can help because this this is it's fundamental research there are some applications but there are less and less and i just think it's really important that people know what's happening and see this actual application of it happening weren't you saying with your research that it was more just research for the sake of research like not necessarily a specific application like i know neck yours is more applicatory applicable <laughs> um, well Appliable. it was actually by the end of my project which I'm no longer on but um, by the end of it it was basic research okay because there was no I mean there were there were obvious commercial applications to it but it wasn't it's not really something that's fully understood. So the investigation is, you know, I, we don't really understand what's going on and sure would be nice if we could. But Rob, yours was more just filling in the gaps in the research. My particular project was breaking down new barriers of research, but there was no application of it as of the time that I was doing it. The pH of Rob's research was like 15 because it was so basic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for phrasing that in a way that nobody will understand <laughs> i understand unless that. you're in chemistry um or have some chemical knowledge <laughs> so i yeah just reiterate pure science is important too a lot of the discoveries that we've had in the last well throughout our entire human history have been due to pure research happening first and then applied research happening after and so our government's insistence on focusing on things that are applicable to businesses 
is short-sighted at best. And uh, working now at NSERC, I'm going to be back on the trail of trying to change that in any way I can. Because I think it's very important. There is um, no industrialized nation in the history er, in human history that has dedicated less than a certain percentage to research and development and been successful. And I think we, we covered it in our science investment episode, but a lot of applicable research arises out of peer research. Yeah. So you can't yeah. just say, well, we don't need peer research because that's how a lot of stuff gets discovered. Yeah. Basic and applied research. Basic is important. It is. Uh, so I don't even, I'm, I'm struggling now to remember. So maybe you guys can remind me what the discussion, maybe Mike was asking a question earlier in offline conversation about <laughs> nuclear binding energy. Uh, well, we no, were, I was asking no, about no, mass. No. You were asking. <laughs> yeah, no, he was asking yeah, about were atomic asking mass. About atomic mass, and we eventually got into a conversation about nuclear binding energy. And so, Nick, or Mike, why don't you ask your question again, and then we'll try to address it in a more formal way. Well, this all came about from watching a crash course video. Yes. Okay, on... I'll, I'll put a link to the crash course. Yeah. Do you know which one it was? Was it? Uh... It was on uh, stoichiometry. <laughs> okay. And, uh, I don't know, they were talking about balancing equations and talk about the atomic mass units that are shown on the the table of the elements and then how the atomic weight, or molar mass, I should say, is essentially a direct reflection of the AMU shown on the t- yeah. periodic table. Um, so I was like, oh, I can't believe we got lied to in school. Because when we were in school, they're like, oh, yeah, just the number on there is your molar mass. But they didn't really go into what it actually meant and how... Yeah, it's the same thing as molar mass, but it's there's stuff, the stuff that goes on, but whatever. And then, Nick, you made a comment about, oh, well, it's weird how iron is heavier than hydrogen. And then I was like, what? It's like, their number's different. And then, then you started talking about energy. And I'm like, why are we talking about energy? And then, like, I obviously everyone knows the E equals MC squared thing and how energy is mass and whatever, but I guess when, when someone tells me something's heavier than something, I think mass, mass, not energy mass so maybe i said per nucleon <laughs> see that doesn't mean anything to me so maybe that's where where, where we can start said, so so nick convince uh, us that iron is lighter than hydrogen i will do that per nucleon <laughs> uh a nucleon is a proton or a neutron so it's just a particle of the nucleus are we good yes. so far? Because I feel like that's the biggest yes. hurdle to get through. Um, so if you compare the mass of a hydrogen atom and just a free proton, they will be different. So as soon as you bind an electron to a hydrogen atom, the hydrogen nucleus gets lighter you'll, you'll have to take my, my okay. word for it but so what's happening is there is something called the nuclear binding energy and so um words 
Okay, so the most stable nuclei in the periodic table is uh, nickel 62, I think. And iron 56 is not quite as stable, but more plentiful for what apparently amounts to mechanistic reasons. So what happens is once you've created a nucleus rather than just free particles, mass starts disappearing. So if you took all the protons and all the neutrons of a iron atom and stuck them together, there would just be, all of a sudden you would notice that the mass was just gone with no apparent reason. But what's happening is some of that mass is being converted to nuclear binding energy. And so the most stable nuclei in the periodic table, iron and nickel, I think, have the mo the largest fraction of their mass being converted to nuclear binding energy. So that makes them the most stable elements on the periodic table. So I'd, I'd have to double check this. But if you look at like the mass number of iron, it's 56, but I think the actual the actual mass is like 55 point something maybe. Rob, are you on this? I'll do it. But if you go to something like hydrogen, which is at the very top of the periodic table, it, uh, it hasn't lost nearly that much mass because it's not nearly as stable a nucleus. So if you take the mass of an atom and divide it by all the number of protons and neutrons, so the number of nucleons... Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, in case, I think the confusion I ran into was that I was thinking you were talking about comparing iron to hydrogen, so putting them both on a scale and saying, oh, look, iron is lighter. But you're saying that if you took... Yeah, that's why I kept saying per nucleon, but I think that got lost I wasn't, somewhere. That didn't clarify anything at all. So if we're talking about iron 56, okay, uh, which is the isotope Nick was talking about, yes, where he's trying to say that Iron 56 will weigh less than 56 hydrogen particles. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. The The atomic weight of iron is 55.845. Yes! <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's that's what it means. And so what's interesting about that is... Um, so if you go from hydrogen to helium, so if you fuse two deuterium atoms so two hydrogen twos so they have one proton one neutron you fuse them together you're going to get helium four but helium per nucleon is lighter than hydrogen per nucleon still with Vaguely. me <laughs> so if you took all the math if you took all the masses of the hydrogens yeah. you were fusing and the masses of the mm -hmm. heliums that were fusing, there would right. be a discrepancy. And that discrepancy is the energy emitted in a nuclear See, and reaction. I learned about that in like physics 30 when we were doing nuclear physics and looking at fission and fusion. 
and the e equals mc squared and calculating the energy released and that it takes to fuse and whatever. So that that kind of completes that picture there when it talks about the binding energy and that it takes the energy to actually hold the nucleus together. Right? It's a weird, beautiful system. <laughs> but yeah. But I don't know. I find it much easier to explain it verbally than to... Or it's even better if I can draw a picture, but it's I'm not quite as good at explaining via typing as we might have found out this week. We were um, we were also talking in that conversation about bosons and hadrons and fermions and baryons. While I don't want to go too far into it, I just want to. I've been doing a little bit of very very. Uh, very preliminary Wikipedia research. And I was going to say some light reading. So photons, which were the focus of this past episode, are elementary bosons. And heavier particles like atoms, nuclei, and hadrons, which is the other thing we were talking about, are called composite bosons. So they're more complicated, but basically every particle, every elementary particle is a boson and then once you get into bosons, you can get more specific. And hadrons are composite particles made of quarks, so things like protons and neutrons. Uh, those sort of... Anything that's held together by a strong force. And so you can, you can go way into things people don't understand about <laughs> uh, relating to elementary particles, nuclear physics, but uh, on the basic level... I was going to say, and it's... It's not a strong force, it's the, the strong, strong force. force. Yes. Yeah. They, well, it's held together by a strong force that is called the strong force. <laughs> <laughs> well, they just discovered two new particles, yeah. was it? And they are baryons? Yeah. I think yeah. so, yeah. So what are, what are baryons? So baryons are... They're things... They're, they're in the family of protons and neutrons. They're made up of three different quarks. And they are hadrons. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know anything more about those particles than that. But they're Ooh. new. And I'm sure they don't know much about them because that uh, the LHC is churning out data like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. You know what I found really cool was when I read that article, I'm like, wow, that's cool. They just discovered these like last week. And then I read, it's like they were discovered in like 2011 (laughs) and they like just finished like all the rigorous peer review and research. And I'm like, that's like the definition of science. That's intense. You announce something three years after you discover it once you're sure that it's a real thing. Well, it was the same thing with Higgs boson. Yeah. What do they go to like 12 Sigma or something like that? Sorry? What? Yeah, like they're, yeah, 12 sigma certainty. Like, they are absolutely positive by the time they actually report something. Yeah. Do they? Do we know if these fit into the standard model, or is that something? I think they said they didn't quite, or it wasn't clear that they did yet. Of course. <laughs> because the minute we complete the standard model, it's like, oh, by the way, there are these two other things, and God knows, really. Well, they're, they're talking now about how the Higgs boson might, or the thing they discovered might not actually be the Higgs boson. It might be something oh, really? different and weird. And wow. It's, it's unclear. Higgs going to have to return his million dollars? Well, no, he still dis- they still discovered the particle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unclear whether it's the mass carrier 
that they've been looking for. Hmm. Did they give Peter Higgs the the Nobel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he shared it with someone else. Hmm. Yeah, because I read in that article that when they discovered these two new ones, like, oh, it's the same uh, facility that discovered the Higgs boson, at which Peter Higgs won the Nobel Prize. I'm oh, like, okay. did he? Yeah. So then I looked it up, and it's like, oh, yeah, he shared it with whoever. I mean, on. he should have, yeah. but... Ow! <laughs> I just kicked the table. <laughs> <laughs> You're so happy for be- <laughs> for good old Higgs. Oh, yep, that's it. I think it's, I think it's Peter Higgs. What did I say? I said good old Higgs. You said Bill. I said good old. Oh, I said Bill no, Higgs. I, I <laughs> specifically <laughs> didn't know his name, so I omitted it. <laughs> good old Pete. Pistol Friend Pete. of the show. Good old Higgsy. Uh, so the last thing I want to talk about as follow-up. Nick, you are obsessed oh, with God. Ubuntu. I love it. Uh, but it's been giving you some issues recently. Yep, it sure has. Uh, I, so I don't, I don't even know. Like... I'm I'm not sure what's happening. Right I tried to fix Windows. it, and it appears to have made it worse. And yeah, luckily I'm on 14.04, so I think I can update to 14.10 in hopes that hope it resets makes it everything better. and makes it fun. Honestly, like when I was first sticking around with Ubuntu, I would like I would get it pretty bad, and then a new di- or the next distribution would come out, and I would go, "Oh, thank God, I can." <laughs> Because it just kind of reinstalls the operating system and fixes all the horrible things I did to it. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Have you guys have you guys seen the feminist hacker Barbie panel? I haven't seen enough yep. to want to talk about it. I've like oh. seen them in passing need, on Twitter, but if you haven't looked at them, look them up. Like I didn't get any of like the hacker coding jokes, but they were very funny. Like I I got them because they were funny, but I didn't get the references, but. It was funny. Oh wait, what? Seeing them, because I thought I so, saw a thing on like they released a book about how Barbie can be a computer engineer. Yeah, the 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 book itself is old. Apparently, it's from like two thousand eight or something. Oh. but yeah, it's like oh, I'm a computer engineer, but it's full of like feminine like feminine stereotypes of like needing men to like yeah. do stuff. She and well, it's, I looked through so it, it and she so- didn't actually do anything productive herself no she backed no. up her own she got data other people to help her then got a virus then infected <laughs> someone else's computer and then required men to fix it yeah or like that's horrible i think she even got and then she got an a on her project for her good work yeah or she like figured out an idea for a program and then men did it for her and it's like yeah wow guys you're knocking it out of the park this is progress that's a, that's how yeah. feminism works uh I can do anything a man can do, but I just might have to get the man to do it for me. Yeah. I guess Barbara released a statement saying that it's an old book that doesn't reflect their current views on... From six years ago? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so Yeah, the world's anyway, changed a lot in six years. <laughs> women can finally program things. Yeah. So, Ugh. I don't know. If, if you haven't looked them up, looked them up they're, they're pretty funny. Yeah. Anything else you anyway. want to talk about? We'll wrap it up for this week. The episode two weeks from now will be brought to us by Tech Savvy. Yep. Like, literally? Literally. I, <laughs> nice. I want to say this episode was a special episode in that it was science and technology, but we're looking into um, possibly doing more of those. And so we'll we'll see how it goes the next few weeks, and we'll, we'll figure out a topic for next week soon. So did we... 
did we release the big news that you had, Rob? Uh, we'll re- we'll Officially? talk about it now, and that'll get me on doing it faster. Because uh, you've you've started. Yeah. I've talked. I've. It's now public domain. So this show is joining Unwind Media, which is a media program project that I'm putting together. I'm pretty excited about it. This is uh, technically the first show to officially join, and it's not going to change much with our day-to-day. Unwind Empire, early adopters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty messy merger. I think some heads are going to roll, but we'll see how, how things come out at the end. Yeah, one of the things that it's going to do is consolidate my resources into one channel instead of being separate separated all over everything. So I'm, I'm really sure. looking forward to making the changes to streamline this project and the other ones. Uh, I still have some stuff that I want to tidy up from when future tech chat and future side chat merged and became future chat so i'm gonna be doing that uh hopefully i think we'll take we'll take a i don't know if it'll be maybe a one or two week break around christmas depending on how things shake out and over that period i'm gonna change everything over but uh unwind media it's a thing so now now we just have to wait for uh vodka and equations to syndicate their content exactly the (laughs) unwind media family (laughs) I don't know. Actually, I was thinking about it, and Future Chat has significantly changed Vodka and Equations. Vodka and Equations has become much more um, political since I've had... <laughs> I don't know. Like This is just an outlet for all my scientific things. It's ended up being a lot like what CGP Grey described for himself with uh, automation and the single transferable vote and things like that. Like He found he got really excited about these things, but he... <clears throat> pardon me. Yeah, um, but uh, he ran out of actual physical people to talk to about these things that he got excited about, and finally he just made a video, and he felt much better about it, so he could talk to virtual internet people about it, and that's basically what Vodka and Equations has become for me. Like, when I am endlessly talking to people about things, I know it's time to write a blog about it. And, uh, yeah, but... like. so now I have an outlet for sciencey things on Future Chat, and Vodka and Equations has gotten less equations and more vodka. Uh, 